Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today, I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, Dr. Zachary Smith. Dr. Smith is a renowned physician, psychologist, cybernetics expert, and retired colonel in the United States Air Force. In retirement, Zachary has established a second career as a best-selling author of several fascinating books across a wide range of topics whose titles include The Joy of Cooking with Little Green Onions, Back Pain for Dummies, and his semi-autobiographical novel Our Little Secret. His latest non-fiction release, which is just hitting the bookshelves now, is titled The Social Psychology of Galactic Castaways. This long-awaited volume is the result of over 20 years of research he conducted using the case study of an anonymous group of subjects he refers to only as the Family R. Written in Zachary's usual informative but highly readable style, this book will be appreciated by academics and the general public alike for its brilliant use of the language, as well as its groundbreaking conclusions. Before we speak with him, I want to give a little background info on Dr. Smith. Zachary was born in New York, but grew up in Marietta, Georgia, being raised by a dear aunt and uncle after losing both his parents in a tragic boating accident. His formal academic career began as a Marshall Scholar at Oxford University, where he reigned as the Grand Master of the Oxford Chess Society for three years in a row, and culminated several years later when he graduated cum laude from Harvard University with degrees in both medicine and science. Next came a distinguished career as an Air Force flight surgeon. His pioneering work in the fields of environmental psychology and robotic artificial intelligence landed him at Alpha Control, where until late 1997, he ran the Human Factors Flight Medicine Divisions for the Jupiter missions. He joins us today to talk about his new book, Groundbreaking Research, as well as his fascinating life filled with unique experiences and varied interests. I hope you will enjoy this captivating interview with acclaimed author and Renaissance man, Dr. Zachary Smith. Dr. Zachary Smith, sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It's an honor to have you on our podcast. I thank you for your time, and I also thank you for the tremendous work you've done, not only as an author, but as an academic researcher, and of course, your selfless service to the space program. We're all in your debt. It was my pleasure, believe me. Now, Zach, before we get started... Zach, Dr. Smith, if you please... This interview is off to a rather inauspicious start, 
that I should live to hear my distinguished name bandied about in such a fashion, indeed. Oh, I, uh, Dr. Smith, I beg your pardon. I, I, I meant no disrespect. It's just that I'm such a fan of your work, and after reading all your books, I feel as if I know you personally. Of course, Dr. Smith, it is. I understand that you're new at this interview game, so I'll overlook it once. Proceed. Uh, uh, very well. Uh, well, let me begin again. Um, Dr. Smith, we want to spend significant time today talking about your new book, but I'd like to talk a little bit about one of your favorite subjects. Me? I know it's what everyone here wants to talk about. Well, sir, you have led a remarkable life, and I know that our listeners will be fascinated with getting to hear more about you. Perfectly understandable. Now, where shall I start? Well, I thought perhaps uh, more or less at the beginning. You had an unusual upbringing. Why don't we begin there? Well, of course. You see, I was born in New York City, and my life, sir, has all the tragedy and drama of a Shakespearean epic. Hmm. My father, Ellsworth Smith, was a brilliant businessman of tremendous nows and guile. He's shall we say, unbridled acumen was a source of great contention among his contemporary lessers. My mother, Geraldine Loretta, was a dear and gentle lady, a social light whose style and parties were the dish of the whole of Manhattan. As you can imagine, my dear boy, with gifts of this magnitude, both of my parents, my father in particular, attracted a great deal of jealousy and, in my opinion, a great deal of ire. Mm. They both died in a boating accident. Howsomever, I always received that verdict as a gross miscarriage of justice. Accident indeed. Thanks to my extensive psychological training, it occurs to me that they were both tamed, as it were, before their time. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, indeed. Oh. I was quickly whisked away to live in Marietta, Georgia, with my great-aunt Bard and my uncle Thaddeus. Mm. A tremendous family. Andy Maud was the matriarch of the Smith family, a very powerful lady, strict. She amassed a great fortune in her time, a tremendous fortune. And Uncle Thaddeus was also at an untimely death. Mm. They were also at the same time raising my delinquent cousin, Jeremiah. Oh, yes. I seem to recall there was some controversy with Jeremiah. So you were raised together then? Indeed we were, although I was vastly the more intelligent and stylish of the two. Mm, makes sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> Indeed. So was there a favorite with Aunt Maud? Uh... Beyond a shadow of a doubt, myself. Ah. I even sent it to her in her final days, you see. That dear little old lady lived to be 110. I thought she would never pass on to her just a reward. Mm. Well, that is a long life. And you said she amassed quite a fortune during her time. Indeed. She and my Uncle Thaddeus both. The rumor was that Uncle Thaddeus had something to do with the discovery of the Comstock Lode. Mm. Rumors, mind you. I don't know the truth of the matter, but that is what I am told. Well, you mentioned that uh, Aunt Maud was a powerful woman, but I understand your Uncle Thaddeus was something of a powerful man in life as well. Oh, yes. He was always throwing things about when something didn't please him. Nicest pie on the surface, but very pugnacious underneath. An iron hand in a velvet glove. Mm. He must have been a great influence on your life as well. Indeed he was. Indeed. He always pushed us to be our very best, you see, and to get as much money and good things out of life that we possibly could. Well, apparently you were something of a gifted child, as you said, and clearly Aunt Maud's favorite, because I was reading that you won a scholarship to Oxford. Did you know that you were special from an early age? 
To say that I was special does not begin to describe the height and breadth of the capabilities of Zachary Smith. Well, on your academic career, when I looked up your uh, curriculum vitae, it was hard to believe that one man could have accomplished so much in such a short time. What advice do you have for aspiring men of medicine or science? At the risk of sounding uh, immodest, uh, academic advice is reserved for intellectual equals, of which I have met none. Ah, I see. Well, it's hard to argue with that. After getting your MD and PhD from Harvard, you went into the Air Force, eventually rising to the rank of full colonel, and that's quite an accomplishment. But for a man of your intellect and imagination, I'd have thought military life would be somewhat rigid, if not stifling. I did find it a bit unimaginative, a little dreary and utilitarian, but it did do. Of course, during your time in the Air Force, you were allowed to enhance your credentials, becoming an environmental psychologist and an expert in cybernetic artificial intelligence. Was the goal always to get involved with the space program? Into the space program, yes. In space, good heavens, no. Mm. It was never my goal to become a cosmic benefactor. (laughs) Well, you were at Alpha Control during the heady days of the Jupiter program. That had to be exciting. Naturally, although from time to time it was a bit of a strain, intellectually and physically, and it did become occasionally a bore. Of course, when the second Jupiter mission became lost in space, that changed everything. We all know the impact that disaster had on the space program, what with the congressional investigations of Alpha Control. Now, I know much of it is still classified, but what can you tell us about how it was that you were forced to remain on board the Jupiter 2 at liftoff. (laughs) Well, of course, uh, I don't remember very much of it, except that during the countdown, I went below to make a few last-minute checks of the helium-nitrogen ratio system, when suddenly I was confronted by what we know now as an agent of a foreign power. How he came to be on board, I haven't a clue. But what shocked me was when I came face-to-face with him, I was staring at a mirror image of myself, uniform and all. Mm. Obviously, whoever put him up to it went to considerable effort to make him appear as if it were me. But as I always say, there's only one room in this galaxy for one Zachary Smith. Anyway, he took advantage of my shock to deliver a karate chop to my neck, (laughs) reprogram the robot, and sneak off, leaving me to die on that ill-fated ship. Fortunately, I regained consciousness in time to save the Jupiter and all aboard, but not before we had been drawn into a meteor storm and spent the next ten years hopelessly lost in space. The rest, as they say, is history. Of course, but I take it they never did find the fake Dr. Smith, did they? Tragically, no. Mm. Well, that had to be a great disappointment for you personally, not seeing the, the rogue brought to justice, as it were. It has always been my deepest desire that justice should be served. Indeed. Well, that leads us to your latest book. The title is The Social Psychology of Galactic Castaways. Now, I want to warn the folks out there, do not be put off by the title. Yes, it's full of data, but most of that's in the appendix. The heart of this book is written so that the layman can understand it. And it's a real page-turner, Dr. Smith. What inspired you to write this book? I have always been fascinated by the social and psychological dynamics of those who suffer the dangers and vicissitudes of life exploring the unknown. Well, by the way, I do love the Ford. It was written by your dear cousin Jeremiah, and I know you two had a stormy relationship, but he sounds so proud of you. 
But I was interested in the part where he says that you should get back out into space to continue your research. Any plans to go back out there? Yes, sir. I have no intention of spending any more time camped out on some dreary cinder. I'd rather die. I guess for legal reasons, you refer to your case subjects as the family are. But it's been speculated who they are, and... Well, my dear boy, don't go there, please. The lawyers will have a field day with that one. Let's just stick with the family are. Okay, we'll do that. But can you give us a little short profile of each member of this subject group, family R? Very well. We'll say Professor R is a good place to start. A simple man, a veritable compendium of virtue, but a dreadful addiction to manual labor. Then there is Madame R, the dear lady, the picture of the true pioneer spirit, Judy R, a lovely girl, who has a very lovely and charming singing voice. And Will R, William, the most agreeable companion I found on this ghastly trip. I assure you, he's like my own son. Uh. Penny, a dear girl, graced with great powers of concentration and a sympathetic heart. However, she did have a strange problem with picking up bizarre, strange animals. Mm. A blue, for example, a dreadful little monkey. <laughs> and the major. Typical military mind for you. Kill or be killed. The bluff, blunt soldier. A rather blunt instrument, if you ask me. If I had the intelligence of a goose, I'd still be a genius compared to him. And then the robot. That blithering bumpkin. That bubble-headed booby. Now, you have a chapter on Centauri Syndrome, the phenomena that causes astronauts to lose their sensible instincts to return to Earth. Did you ever succumb to that malady yourself? Certainly not. Such things is out of the question for those with a superior mind and brain power, such as I. Makes sense. You mentioned that being marooned on a desolate planet requires great strength of character, which, of course, you have in spades. Where do you draw yours from? Discipline, dear friend. Years of training oneself. We must learn to face our fears. And I have been doing that since I was a boy. There were times when you faced incredible dangers from a veritable horde of aliens and other creatures. Was it difficult to maintain courage under fire for so many years? Oh, my very dear sir, at times it was more than a man of my artistic sensitivity could bear. Oh, the pain. The pain of it all. Mm. Still, your stellar example must have been a great help to the other castaways. Indeed, yes. It was the least I could do for my fellow travelers. Well, now, there's a chapter in your book titled The Need for Naps. That sounds like good advice, but did you take your own prescription, Doctor? There are limits to the opponents in you. One must rest to restore one's strength. In short, yes. I understand the robot was quite a chess player. Did you have anything to do with that? Indeed, yes. There was nothing that that cackling canister could do that I wasn't responsible for, ultimately. Well, speaking of the robot, you mentioned that there were some unexpected side effects of your breakthrough work in AI that impacted the robot. I understand that he suffered from some unique personality quirks. I programmed him too well, I think. You see, I gave him rather an evolving programming, which would give him more humanistic, shall we say, qualities as time went on. Mm. Howsomever, that quickly devolved, and that monstrous mountebank dissolved into something more sentimental, shall we say, a miserable piece of scrap metal. 
Well, now there's a whole chapter on romance in outer space. I thought that was particularly interesting. And you detail your on-again, off-again relationship with a young lady named Athena. What advice do you have for those who are tempted to try intergalactic dating? Well, first of all, let me say don't. But second of all, let me say that one must always be firm with these creatures. They are, after all, the weaker. Sound advice. You're still single despite being famous and a very eligible bachelor. Any plans along those lines? I'm afraid I'm too much of a blithe spirit for that sort of thing, if you know what I mean. Say no more. Well, in addition, you're a recognized gourmet chef. It must have been difficult to be separated from your famous kitchen and forced to survive on a bland diet with occasional periods on short rations. How did you manage to adapt to space food? Adapt? Ha! Never! The dear lady was a marvelous cook, make no mistake. Howsomever, there were many times that Zachary Smith's gourmet epicurean was reduced to a meal of fodder. Oh, dear. I understand that fresh greens and little hearts of cyclamen became a real staple on pre-planus. Oh, indeed. We lived off of the hydroponic garden many a year. Well, that had to be bland for an epicurean of your status. Indeed it was. On Earth, you had quite the reputation for your green thumb. Tell us about your gardening tips on alien planets. I must tell you that you must be very careful about the atmosphere. There was one time that I planted some small seeds for some vegetables, and they grew to be twice or three times their size. It was dreadful. The other side of that equation is this. I had a life-changing experience when out in space. It's detailed in one of my books. The chapter is called The Great Vegetable Rebellion. It Uh talks about my having been turned into a stalk of celery. (laughs) Ever since then, I've had a great deal of difficulty dining on vegetables and those lovely things. Oh, that must be tough. Well, I understand you're already working on your next book, Dr. Smith. Can you give us a little sneak preview? Well, I can share a little bit. But the working title is The Art of Arrangement, Negotiating with Non-Terrestrial Beings. Mm. This book is a practical guide for intergalactic relations based upon my experiences making deals on behalf of the family R with aliens from across the cosmos. Mm. I'm not supposed to mention this, but there is also a TV series being planned. But let that just be our little secret. Oh, certainly. Well, as we round out the interview, sir, do you have any advice for other aspiring authors? Yes, but that's all included in my book after next, so you'll have to buy it when it's published to find out the details. The short answer is read all of my books and try to follow my example. That makes sense to me. Well, as we come to a close, sir, can you tell us what's next for Dr. Zachary Smith? Well, as I mentioned before, they are considering doing a television series based on our adventures. I'm sure they could use my advice in sort of a, shall we say, advisory capacity. But we shall see. It all depends, dear boy, on the money. Well, I can't tell you what a pleasure it has been having you on Alpha Control today, Dr. Smith. You've been very generous with your time. You've led a fascinating life. You're a true Renaissance man, a brilliant writer, scientist, physician, and an inspiration to millions of Americans. So let me just say once more how much we appreciate the time you've spent with us, and we do hope that sometime down the road we can convince you to come back on Alpha Control. Anytime, dear boy. It's always wonderful talking about my favorite topic in the world, me. (laughs) Indeed. Good day, sir, and we will talk to you later. Adieu. (laughs) Okay, that was great. (laughs) 
Well, that was a real treat getting to speak with Dr. Smith. But of course, this homage to the character is only possible because of the talents of the man behind this uncanny Jonathan Harris impression, Mr. Michael Panzerato. Mr. Panzerato was born and raised in the city of Baltimore and still resides in Maryland today. A Lost in Space fan from the age of five, Michael was drawn to the gifted performance of Jonathan Harris and his portrayal of Dr. Smith. In fact, Michael admits that he started imitating the iconic Smith character all through junior high school, even though it didn't help him in getting any dates. In addition to Harris, Michael was drawn to several other classically trained actors who played significant roles in sci-fi and horror films, such as Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. Impressions of those performers soon followed. The acting bug caught Michael in high school, and he's been following that passion ever since, appearing in numerous local and regional theater productions. Mr. Panzerato is also famous among the online Lost in Space fan community for his spectacular video impressions of Dr. Smith that he frequently posts. I want to speak with him today about his love for Lost in Space, Jonathan Harris, and acting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy part two of our special as we interview actor Michael Panzerato. Wow, all I can say, Michael, is bravissimo, if I'm saying that correctly. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. (laughs) Awesome. So first of all, thank you so much for coming on Alpha Control. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time, and you very graciously agreed to make this happen. I want our listeners to hear from the man behind this incredible impression of our dear departed Jonathan Harris. So let's kind of start at the beginning, if we can. Tell us about when, where, and how you first experienced lost in space oh gosh well i was about um i would say honestly it was before kindergarten um i was born in the 70s so there wasn't a lot of new besides star wars going on and of course that didn't come till 77 and when that came it was an outpouring of Mm sci-fi so there you know they ran lost in space i think it was around four o'clock on a kiddie show called um captain chesapeake and uh, as a kid, I would go out after, you know, I would go out to play and my mother would have to call me in um, for me to see the show. It was kind of like my soap opera, I guess. And I, I didn't know, it was the color, um, the explosions, uh, and the, uh, the robot initially caught my attention. But then Jonathan Harris, uh, you know, the voice really captivated me. I love sound. I still do. And um, hearing his voice as I got a little older and, you know, watch the show is what really um his character and the, the larger than life way he behaved really what is what and everybody else of course too but um you know that's where i focused <laughs> my attention yes so he became your favorite character then for the show yeah uh, as a kid it was the robot you know you want to be he was you know strong and he had he could shoot arcs of electricity and you know i would walk around like him uh, and even in the grocery store my mother was very put off by that <laughs> but mm. Then Dr. Smith, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I love the way he commanded the room. You know, when he was in the room or in the scene, he, he kind of commanded the scene, and I thought that was really fun. You know, he seemed like a fun character. Yeah, well, he definitely is fun. So you told me that you started doing Harris impressions early, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, shoot, I would say by the time I was in fifth grade, I had him even with underdeveloped voice, pretty down, at least the cadence and the tone and, and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, my sixth grade year in middle school, I spoke like him the whole for the whole year. I didn't help me very much with the girls, but, it, you know, 
a lot of my teachers, would, I remember one time a teacher calling my mother in for a conf, uh, conference and saying, you know, I, his, his vocabulary is out of this world, but it, he's insulting other students and they don't know that they're being insulted necessarily. And I, I'm not <laughs> sure. It kind of puts me at odds of what to do. So that was fine. <laughs> That was the impact on me. <laughs> that's great. That's that's hilarious. So, well, your impression is obviously very uncanny, and and that's what's made you famous. And I, I guess in a way, on the among the Lost in Space online fan community, uh, other than the change of voice, has your interpretation of Jonathan Harris changed over the years? You know, I, it did. I didn't realize it though until I started going on uh, the Facebook pages. I had I played a character in an old melodrama. Uh, like him, and the reason that I played it like him was because he was—he read like him. You know, the the character read very much like Doctor Smith. He would say um, uh, a lack and a lass, and he would, all these things that you know Doctor Smith would say. So I played it like him, and I got crazy rave reviews. Um, the mm. audience loved it. Uh, they actually moved my place in the curtain call to last, and it was it was really great. And then when I started to when the, I started to see the fan pages, and I thought I'm going to put it on there and see what they think. The fans actually told me, you know, there's a there's an impersonation for Dr. Smith, and then, then there's an impersonation for Jonathan Harris, and then I was doing both. So when I was playing a scene that was, you know, and I used my son, when we're Dr. Smith and Will, then I'm playing Dr. Smith, but Harris is a little, is a little different. He's a little more dramatic even, and the type of drama is different. You know, Dr. Smith always is, oh my God, the way of the world, or this is happening, pay attention to me. Da, 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 da. Um, Harris's uh, his inflection at times is a little bit different from Dr. Smith, and so I fine-tuned that a little bit. Okay. So that's been great fun. Yeah, well, you had mentioned to me earlier when we spoke that there are a lot of elements to the way that uh, Jonathan Harris or Dr. Smith speak. The impression contains more than just imitating the sound of the voice. What are the important elements, do you think? And you can separate it out between Harris and yeah. and Smith. So, yeah, Jonathan Harris. Uh, so I do, you know, I don't do, I don't say that I do them well, but I, I listen to and have done impersonations of other actors and things like that. And, um, he has very distinct diction and, and voice, but moreover than that, he has a very distinct cadence when he speaks. Mm. Um, he reverses emphasis on certain words, uh, and it, it translates in Smith, but, and more in Smith than it did, say, Mr. Phillips or um, uh, Space Academy. You know, the, I think you get a much stronger sense of Jonathan Harris and Dr. Smith than you do as other characters. But when he was in Sydney doing the Never Fear Smith is Here, and he was talking about getting his first role, and they wanted him to speak with a Polish accent, and he mm. went to the empathy and didn't get you know a whole lot of help there. So he went home. He said, I went home and I pondered. That right there. <laughs> Most people, I went home and I pondered. You right. know, His had a rhythm to it that is unreal. I went home and I pondered. Or... Um, on the show when he would say to hear my name being bandied about in this fashion. There's a little, there's a little bing bong. Uh, beat yeah, to it. Yeah. Fashion, you know, is very um, different. Or when one time he was on the some planet with major West, he said, Oh, good heavens. I'm stuck here with a madman. It's, it's his own thing. I've never heard. I mean, Clifton Webb is probably the closest to Jonathan Harrison. I think I read before that he patterned his style in some ways after Clifton Webb, uh. but his movements, everything was totally different from, Anybody I've ever seen before, except, of course, myself. <laughs> Thanks to him. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's absolutely true. He was one of a kind. 
Yeah. Well, I love it because it's so unique. Let me ask you this. So obviously you've spent a lot of time watching Lost in Space. Are you also a student of some of his other performances? Like I guess he was in the, was it the Third Man and the Bill Dana mm-hmm. show? And Have you watched any of those things? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, my, it's funny because as a kid, you know, when VCRs first came out and, you know, they came out with all of these tapes and things, my father really frightened my father. My father was a really average blue collar guy, you know, not only say macho, but you know, back yeah. then that's how guys were. But uh, talking, wanting to talk like that and behave like that, you know, I would say, Dad, can we get, you know, they'd have a tape or something. Botany Bay, I remember we recorded Botany Bay, and he was on an episode of Bewitched, and I recorded my father being quite put off, thinking, why? He, him saying to me, why do you want to, of all the people, why do you want to? Yeah. talk like that and behave like him. But um, yeah, my only regret is they, they don't have some kind of uh, footage of him on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to have seen you know that come out even more, other than, thank God we have the Never Fear Smith is here, because um, that's sort of a stage performance. But I love the Bill Dana show. I can't find it anywhere on DVD. Somebody had it on YouTube, and I loved it, and then they took it off. Now, Bill Dana is very interesting. So if you watch The Third Man, and that character is very unique, but he's very um, kind of quiet, um, almost reserved, almost shy mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, you know, almost, uh, I don't want to say ro- like a robot, but he's very, um, he's an accountant and he's very uh, regimented. Uh, but then when you watch Bill Dana, you see more of um, almost like fate or what have you was preparing him to play Dr. Smith because he had more of that kind of I'm surrounded by idiots like he um, constantly referred to Bill Dana and Don Adams as ninnies Mm. uh, on the Bill Dana show again though he was a great actor and the character was unique I mean it was even different from Smith he was very funny in the Bill Dana so I really enjoyed that Space Academy um, I like Space Academy I remember it was on again as a kid on Saturdays I think and uh, I had that doll my cousin got it actually had the doll of him in Space Academy, and you could not find a robot. So I would use that doll with any dumb robot that I had uh, and pretend that it was Dr. Smith and the robot. But uh, he did great on, and he's totally different. He's not a coward. You know, he doesn't do as much as, oh, or that kind of the whimpering, slight-eyed kind of thing at all in Space Academy. And Botany Bay, if you've never seen Botany Bay, uh, what an interesting I haven't. No, that's one I need to look into. He's a thief, uh, like a a highwayman, basically, and he's got a beard, kind of, you know, hasn't shaved, and he's rough-looking, and he's a little out of character. You know, what you think of, because you think, oh, Dr. Smith, but you see him doing that. Now, another thing you can see on YouTube, uh, which is really cool, is um, an episode of Lights Out that he did, uh, where he plays an emissary of the devil. Mm. Now, that's really great. And there's a really cool thing on there. I think it's the General Electric Theater called the the Good Mr. Smith, the Something Mr. Smith. Anyway, it's with Vincent Price. Oh. Yeah, it's a little half-hour show, and, you know, Vincent Price is the good guy, and Jonathan kind of plays this uh, fraud art dealer or art collector or something. Frenchman. They both play Frenchman, and it was great for me because Vincent Price and Jonathan Harris are two of my absolute favorite actors. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think the thing for me, you know, Jonathan is the reason I act. When the year that I spoke like him, um, I had just purchased a Starlog magazine, which again, magically enough, had also an interview with Peter Cushing, another favorite of mine, mm. <laughs> as well as John Harris. And it talked about his career and how he started, you know, on Broadway. And seeing Lost in Space, imagining him on stage, you imagined, or at least I imagined him, coming out of the wings, you know, walking out on the stage and just that voice blowing out into the audience, bellowing out into the audience, 
gripping their attention. And the difference in him compared to most actors is what kind of actor I wanted to be. We didn't have words for it back then in my family. I learned later on it's called a classically trained actor. Um, although Jonathan did some Shakespeare, I don't think he was really into Shakespeare, but for me, the stage training translates. And I think that's the difference in his voice, too. A lot of those folks back then in that era, and Vincent Price mentions it in an interview that he did, they had that voice. They trained themselves to speak um, and there's a name for it, Pacific something, Standard English or something like that. Uh, they train themselves to speak that way. And um, Marlon Brando and actors like that put an end to all that. Um, oh. That What is that called? Method acting. And, and yes. that kind of stopped all of that kind of developed persona. And they formed it into truth or something real or whatever they called it. But, um, you know, they talk about it. And Vincent Price said, look, that's why a lot of us did horror films and why we ended up in that genre was because it fit into the way we moved and talked and it fit into that genre mm -hmm. um, and we wanted to stay employed and everybody else was doing you know all this modern talk i think mark goddard had a more brando-ish approach more yeah. method emotional fluid approach well there's space for both i think and it makes mm -hmm. sense what you're saying the comment by vincent price i do think though there's something particularly unique about jonathan harris's voice of course i knew that he was the voice of one of the cylon characters in battlestar galactica i knew that i think because i had a starlog ma magazine and it was, <laughs> it, i was big into sci-fi during that era that was my time of you know when star wars and battlestar galactica and all those yeah. shows were coming out and of course i thought he was great as that but i'll never forget going to see a movie with my kids years later of course the disney or the pixar the bugs life oh uh, yeah and i think it's a, a praying mantis character i can't remember the name or anything but manny Man the magician <laughs> okay so we're sitting there and it's me and my wife and i think it was all three of our little kids at the time and i practically screamed out i said that's dr smith in the, in the theater and everybody turned around and looked at me like what what are you talking cuz i had no idea he was in that movie and it it was and my wife's like who i said never mind i'll tell you later and sure enough it was him it was just impossible not to recognize it am i wrong uh, oh no no i i was the same thing i was um I don't even know, to be honest, I think I was dating someone who wanted to see it. And we went to see it, and um, I did the same thing. I had no idea he was in it. And the first I'd seen Roddy McDowell, who I thought was great also. Another great, um, no longer with us. And I was like, oh, that's Peter Vincent, great, Roddy McDowell's in this, yada, yada. And then um, when he came on, uh, and from the most mysterious regions of uncharted Asia, I <laughs> lost it. I did the same thing. Oh my God, that's so. That was the first movie I bought my kids yeah, <laughs> when, when they came along. <laughs> oh, it's great! It's great. He, um, Burt Reynolds, even said uh, something about his voice. You know, he, some voices you hear and you know right away. You're absolutely right. They'll never be. I mean, Vincent Price, all of those guys, they had great voices, but Jonathan Harris's voice was, to this day, absolutely the most distinct. You know, other than maybe George Sanders. You know, you always hear George Sanders, you know his voice. But Jonathan mm -hmm. Harris, he, I mean, the cadence, the rhythm, the, the volume shifts. He did a lot of volume shifts. I mean, there's one episode where you could see Guy Williams grab his ear. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there, you know, there's a, a lot of stage in him that he brought into that show. And um, I met him once. Do tell. Yeah, I, um, well, when the Starlog magazine came out, I wrote him a letter and had no idea where to mail it. 
you know, there was no internet in those days and we had no idea. So I drew a picture of him. I drew a picture of him as Dr. Smith and kept it for all those years. Never knew where to mail it. Really broke my heart when I found out he, he answered every letter he ever got. That really crushed me because oh, I could have I could have heard from him. But he was in town for a um, some kind of TV guide thing. It was himself. It was um, uh, from Love Boat, the doctor, uh, the neighbor on the Honeymooners. I forget her name. Trixie, maybe? I forget. I walked in, and mine, this is my guy. I mean, this is the one, you know, mm-hmm. uh, my idol. And uh, I walked in, and he was the first person you saw when you walked in the door. He was in center. And I, I got up to him, and I froze. I stood there grinning like an idiot. I didn't know what to say. And finally, I just bent over and blurted out, I'm an actor because of you. Mm. <laughs> and he said, oh, really? And... uh <laughs> I said yes, and uh, we talked about it. And he was genuinely uh, interested in listening to you. Like, he actually talked to you. I remember him saying, well, he said, are you still doing it? And I said, no, I I got up. He said, well, it is a very difficult business. It's such a nasty business. Mm. And I said, well, I wanted to, you know, have children, and I was afraid for them and and all of that. And we talked, and I had, uh, I gave him the the letter, and I gave him a a tape I made of me doing him. Oh, wow. (laughs) And when I left, he said, thank you very much for my presence. And it was cool because he was eating fruit. He had a plate of fruit and cottage cheese. Mm. And he said to me, I sign in cottage cheese. <laughs> <laughs> he, I'll tell you another thing, a little quirk I picked up from him. Um, as a kid, I'm very detail-oriented. It's the little things, you know. Mm. And um, he had a ring that he wore on his left hand yes. all the time in everything he did. Everything he did except maybe Botany Bay. So I would pit, you know, whatever ring I would have, I would put on my left hand. I'm left-handed anyway, so I would always just tell people, well, I wear my watch and my ring on my left hand because I'm left-handed. But it was always because of him. Mm-hmm. And um, I inherited a wedding band that was my grandfather and my uncle's, and I added a bezel set amethyst. Oh. So it looked just like his ring. Wow. And that became my stage ring. So it's a family piece because it absolutely represents my family. Um, but now it also has him. Um, in there, and I use, I wear that ring everywhere, and especially when I am on stage, it's my acting piece. So, yes. I always, it's like a good luck piece, so, you know, that's it. And I got his autograph uh, from the whole thing, and, you know, that's a good memory that I'll always have. And he really has become almost a part of my, you know, part of me. He, you know, like he patterned some of his work off of Webb. I pattern a good deal of my work and my diction from him. I, I make sure that I speak properly <laughs> all the time and try to do my very best. But there are other influences there as well. So yeah, well, I think it's a great thing, and that's that's cool. Well, you're helping keep the memory alive with your work and your acting. I want to talk about your acting in general, but let me just circle back around to something you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You mentioned two other actors that you particularly like, Vincent Price and uh, Peter Cushing. Now, do you do an impression of either one of those guys as well? You know, I have tried Vincent Price. So many times, but he has, he's very difficult to hit. In order to be able to do a um, proper impression, you really have to be able to match the tone. Mm-hmm. You have to have a tone. So your voice has to be able to be, you have to be at the same level as that person or a level very close. And I cannot get, my wife keeps hounding me to keep practicing Vincent Price. I've tried it with the thriller thing. I've tried it with a billion things and I can't get it. Um, it's a little higher tone, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and he's got a now that he's got a silky voice. He almost uh-huh. has a, a when I list, we listen to Vincent Price on YouTube. They've got several of his ghost stories, and my youngest son, who 
very typically plays Will on the um, mm. <laughs> on the Lost in Space clips. He loves to listen to his ghost stories, so we listen to them at night, and it's like listening to a Nat King Cole. For me, I love mm-hmm. Nat King Cole. Listening to him sing, he's got a very silky, smooth. I mean, he's telling you these terrible ghost stories, but you're, it's very relaxing just to listen to him. Right um, now, Cushing, uh, he had a unique voice. He his diction was very uh, clear. Also, he had a beautiful speaking voice. He, I use his mannerisms. I played Van Helsing. Ah. Um, which was, of course, his one of his centerpiece characters. Um, Loved those I, old Hammer horror films. Oh those were God. great. You'll never get another one. Mm. And it was a simple formula. They were almost like a rep company. They had the same actors rotating roles in different films. And um, kind of like Dark Shadows, they had, they had their own little rep thing going. But what I love about the Hammer movies that seems to have eluded the horror films of today is that you walked away with, you know, the bad guy was dead. And right. usually killed in a really cool way. <laughs> you know, uh, Peter Cushing was a very inventive, physical actor. And that guy, now, if I, I would say if I could combine, you know, Jonathan Harris's love and joy for his work and energy with Cushing's physicality, Price's kind of um, smooth intelligence, and Lee's, Christopher Lee's power, mm. or even Patrick Stewart, but Christopher Lee's power in a, in a role, you would have one killer actor. <laughs> the oh, yeah. Cushing rolled all of his his uh, R's. Yes, I think that's yes. Princess Leia. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In Star Wars, I, I when they I thought the Rogue One was kind of cool. I thought that was such a uh, at least in the sense of you know the guy had no children. Um, so what, I thought it was great that they remembered him. I think it's very important that these guys that gave our generation so much pleasure be remembered, and they did give us something to work forward and work for and. I love that they're being remembered. And so Peter Cushing would say, the power of the crucifix in these cases is twofold. This is not a question of mysticism. It is a question of vampirism. And mm. there is a whole host of damned souls in Pelham House. <laughs> a great way of <laughs> taking the silliest lines and making them seem so cool, you know. He's taking the yeah. blood of his own mother. You know, that kind of, I love him. I yeah. love him. He's great. But the oh. physicality he brought, you know, and those props, he was known for props. That was all him. Everything you see Cushing do, you know, with, with it's running across the table and leaping down. And I think the script for that great scene that we all love with where he kills Dracula in the first movie, you know, he runs across the table, he yes. jumps up in the air, he rips down the curtains, and he uses the candlesticks to drive Dracula into the sun. The script originally said he pulls out a crucifix and, and drives Dracula into the sun. And Cushing said, oh, we can't do that. We've got to give them a little bit more you know, more to look at. Where's your sense of drama? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. He, I mean, those guys, and like Jonathan Harris, with the alliteratives, or um, the one of the directors of The Third Man said, you know, this character was a very bland, not dull, but bland guy. That was the character. And every week, Jonathan brought something a little different, you know, to the character. And um, Vincent Price was the same way. And, you know, uh, I don't know the full story behind the thriller thing. I've heard good and bad about it. But the fact that he was the whole reason, I mean, I wasn't a Michael Jackson freak. No. Uh, the whole reason I bought that, they, I don't know if you remember, but they released it on um, video. It was, you could buy it. It had the making of thriller. Right, right. Yeah, and, and my dad, we bought, it was expensive back then. Tapes were not $20, you know, like, right. you know, DVDs are expensive and dad bought it because vincent price was attached to it star wars george lucas put alec guinness and peter cushing in star wars because they were big stars at the time i mean alec guinness we don't even go there but peter cushing 
was still making Hammer films with David Prowse. I mean, David Prowse played Frankenstein two or three times mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with Peter Cushing. So these guys were box office draws, and they deserve all the credit in the world. You know, I, I'm so glad that Lost in Space took off the way it did in the 90s. Now, a word on that, if I may. Sure. Uh, you hear a lot of discussion about Jonathan Harris, you know, this show being stolen by Dr. Smith and the robot and wheel and all. That show, I think, was successful, to my mind, and I'm a, like I said, you know, I'm a Jonathan Harris freak, was successful because of the ensemble. I mean, there was a point in the show when that music was going to come on and Guy Williams was going to hand some alien his, his arse, mm -hmm. you know? Exactly. Uh, you know, this guy could sense, he, could, he was a genius, you know, he was in great physical shape, and he was wise. You know, right. he was almost a Captain Picard kind of diplomat-wise. He wouldn't fight until he had to, right. you know? Right. Um, June Lockhart, I mean, Maureen wasn't a pushover. You don't get that from her character. She was ready to roll when she needed to fight. I mean, she was ready to take on Michael Rennie, you know, uh, yep. but she had that sweetness. Penny and Judy, uh, Bill Mooney in those comic books, he hit the nail on the head. You know, the silliness of the show could be translated into Penny's imagination. He had a great comic book where you had, uh, at one point, what was really going on in the series, which was like the black and white episodes in the comic book. And on the, underneath, you had Penny's diary, which was where it was the silly, what we uh. all saw. So it was really, I mean, you can see that in Angela Cartwright. It, the shows that involved her were all hard. Marta yes. Crispin, the beauty of the show. I mean, everybody had a crush on Judy. <laughs> everybody wanted to be Don. And I can remember at a certain age, sitting with my father watching Lost in Space, and uh, they would just walk on stage and Dad would be like, hmm, wonder where they were, you know? <laughs> that <laughs> kind of thing. Yep, inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> right. Uh, Bill Mooney, you can't get better than Bill Mooney. I mean, that guy's been acting since he was like four years old. And what he brought to Will, we all wanted to be Will. Well, I wanted to be Dr. Smith. Most people want to be Will. The robot, um, you know, Bob May, Dick Tufelt's voice, I mean, it, you know, it speaks for itself. But Bob May, you know, Bob May, you know, you get into that suit, not just anybody could get into that robot suit. People would stick their arms out stiffly and move them up and down, and that would be that. Bob May did a whole thing with that robot. I mean, mm -hmm. the movements on that robot were incredible. I always took the view, if you watch the show, and I could be way off on this. You know, Dr. Smith programmed the robot. He was the one that was really, other than Will, in charge of the robot's behavior and programming and all of that. The robot's reactions to aliens, the hysteria, almost mimic Dr. Smith's reactions to aliens. And I really think that was Bob May. I really mm -hmm. believe he did all of that. As Dr. Smith got worse, the robot got worse. Mm -hmm. You know, with his emotion, with his, his reaction to aliens. You know, that was an 80-pound suit that he carried without the feet. He had to be a pretty strong guy to heft that around. So I love them all. I went to see June Lockhart and Steel Magnolias when that was out, just because June Lockhart, what the hell does an eighth grader care about Steel Magnolias? But I wanted to see it because she was in it. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I want to back you up on what you said about Bob May and the suit. Unsung yeah. during the time the show was on, and thankfully Kevin Burns was able to get him the recognition he deserved. So I totally back up everything you said about all of these guys. So, well, I'm very jealous, I have to say, that you had the opportunity to meet uh, Jonathan Harris. I'm glad for you since he's such an impact on your life and your acting career. Let's talk about that a little bit. When did you decide you wanted to, to start getting into acting itself? Well, after the Starlog, um, of course, I had no way of knowing how to go about it, which really remained for most of my young life. Well, we went to see June Lockhart in Steel Magnolias. That was my first time in a professional theater. 
Mm. Uh, it was at the Mechanic in Baltimore, and that blew me away, just the atmosphere and just being in there. And then I went to see, uh, when I went into high school, they were performing uh, The Mouse That Roared. Mm. I remember watching it on stage, and I forget what character it was, but thinking, oh, no, he should be doing this, or he should be speaking this way, or have a little bit more emphasis. And I thought, I need to get on stage. So I, I um, didn't want to audition at first, so I did lights, and I thought, this is rather a bore. So then I went down mm. and did it. I finally I got onto it, and I, got, uh, the, I started in 10th, 11th grade with um, Rest Assured. But before all of that, um, my father could see something in me, and he bought me a video camera, 1988. It was $1,000, a lot of money. Wow. And um, I wanted to make movies. And I started making movies with my friends, and they were full-on vampire films. I wanted to be like Peter Cushing and all of that. I thought, well, the only way to do it is to make your own, and maybe somebody can see it. Somebody will, We can send it to somebody, and they'll say, oh, we, we need another Hammer Horror film. And, <laughs> and we'll get this whole thing started. Alas, it was not meant to be, but it was a lot of fun. And so I started making those movies with my buddies, also in high school. And then um, in college, I did Hey Neighbor. Mm. And um, I went on to Dracula and uh, California Suite and The Drunkard, which was the melodrama that I played like Dr. Smith. And now I'm getting ready to do um, Charlie's Aunt, which was Vincent Price. He was in that with Roddy McDowell. So I'm very excited about that. Oh, wow. Uh, but yeah, there's always something, a germ in the back of the mind that says maybe someone will see these clips that I'm doing and say, hey, we need a voice or, hey, why don't you jump on for, <laughs> get to say indeed to that new robot or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you never know, but you got to keep plugging at it. And, you know, I love it. Keep pushing my wife to move west. You know, we got to get out, out of this place, like the song says, and <laughs> go west. <laughs> Oh, no, that's great. You never know. Like you said, someone might see those videos you got on Facebook, and that's how stars yeah. are born sometimes. So <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly pulling for you. Don't know if we'll ever get a Lost in Space fan film like the ones that have been done for Star Trek. And I, I haven't mm -hmm. seen a lot of that, but from what I have seen, those are pretty neat. But if we did, would Michael Panzerato be up for shaving his beard and joining the castaways? Oh, my God, yes. Oh, are you kidding <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah i have seen i think it's called star trek continues right and um my god they've got uh, they've got i've seen john delancey on there uh mm -hmm. q uh annie lockhart i mean come on right annie lockhart <laughs> right but yeah i would be more i would love to do um anything like that anything actually related to lost in space <laughs> i'll tell you my parents I just want to say my mom and dad and stepfather and my wife have been very patient and encouraging all these years with Lost, because those things were not easy to find when I was a kid. And even now, my wife is always pushing me to do the next clip, do the next whatever. You know, she's so supportive. Not many families or people would put up with someone screaming like that at the sight of an alien. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? So it's been an adventure for them, too. <laughs> but yeah. I love it. Well, it's a real blessing to have a family that can uh, accommodate your unique esoteric uh, interests. My mother used to introduce me to people in advance, you know, my son's a little different. He's a little <laughs> different. Don't be surprised. I used to wear a suit in third grade to school, three-piece suit or a blazer to school. I was more, I realized now I was more like Fraser Crane. You know, I didn't mm. realize it then that Fraser didn't exist, but I, I was thinking I was Jonathan Harris or even Barnabas Collins. I wanted, you know, I thought that was really cool. Walk with a cane. Are you kidding? You know, right. and, and so I really stuck out. <laughs> yeah. 
I was in that same boat with you in in certain ways. So it's okay to be different. If we were all alike, life would be bland. I think so. Absolutely. Is there anything big coming up for you next, Michael? No, um, I'm doing the play. I do have. I am going to that. I don't even remember the name of the con. It's in Boston. I'm going to that, and I get to meet everybody there. Billy and uh, Billy Mumi and Angela Cartwright and all those great people. That's going to be a lot of fun. And um, I'm staying the whole weekend, so I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm going to be like a kid in a candy store. My, I'm going up alone, um, so my family, my wife said, no, 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 we wouldn't dream of being in your hair <laughs> <laughs> that weekend. So it's going to be lovely, and I'm meeting up with um, one of the very good admins uh, for one of the pages. That's going to be fun. Right now, that's, that's it. I am looking in seriousness, though, at California, um, and I am always looking to full-on embrace, you know, uh, the acting, uh, you know, to, you have to be realistic, and that was, you know, I came from a very practical family, and so I wanted to, I did want children, and I had two wonderful sons and a wonderful wife, and I want to make sure that they're taken care of, but um, it doesn't leave you, you know, and uh, you all, you want to do it all the time, and when you do plays like I'm doing, you know, you work four days a week, and you do the rehearsals, during the week and that kind of thing. And then the play, you get a month. And you always think, you know, if I had more time to rehearse, I could do so much better. And so, you know, that's the beautiful benefit of, of being paid <laughs> to do it. So that's, that's you know. As Jonathan would say. Right, I love the money. I want the money. Yeah. I don't care about the labeling. I want the money. I love <laughs> now, I'll tell you who fascinated me. One question I always have uh, had was his wife. Um, yes. I've heard beautiful, you know, they say he was a big family man. And um, I know that he, I know he took extraordinary care of his father. I, I'd heard about that and that he was, he kept his family life very private. He kept them out of the media and all of that. But I've seen, she's a beautiful lady, very elegant yes. woman. I would love to know, since he was so unique, how was she? You know, um, she must have been something special even to, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. take the kind to like a kind, you know, and I would love to have, get that answer and i would love the story of his ring to find out where that came from was that from her you know he worked with truman capote it had a very theatrical look i often wonder if did yeah. someone gave that to him as a piece from a play or something well i do know from reading and from getting to speak with kevin burns i know that his wife was quite successful in her own right she was an executive for, i think for a, like a not cosmetics, but personal care company, and I can't remember which one it was. But you're right. They did keep their personal life mm -hmm. quite private, and it's almost like he had his world of work in Hollywood, and she had her world of work, you know, being an executive. But she had to mm -hmm. be a unique person. Now, The Ring, I believe that was a gift to him when he was working on stage. He had done some performance or role or something like that, and someone, I can't remember who, had given that ring to him to say, hey, this is a job well done. And he kept it, and it's sort of like the same thing you are talking about with the ring, mm -hmm. uh, the family ring, same sort of thing. That was a very important piece to him. And I do know this little tidbit that Kevin Burns told me in the reboot, the Netflix reboot for Lost in Space, the little cameo that Bill Mooney did as the actual Dr. Smith, you know, the one that was had the identity stolen. If, if you mm -hmm. haven't seen that, and I'm spoiling it for you, I apologize. But um, <laughs> right. you're a little late. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not you, the, the people who haven't seen it. It's a great show. Oh, it's a great show. But he's wearing an exact copy of Jonathan Harris's ring in that part. I didn't it, catch it. Oh, my God. I got to check that out. Yes. You know, I have to say this. Um, two things. One, we are all of us greatly indebted to Kevin Burns. 
Um, oh, yes. That man, uh, the work that he must have done getting the rights from Erwin uh, Allen and, and Sheila Allen, and then, you know, all that documentary, what was that called, Lost in Space Forever? I mean, yes. you know, that little clip with Billy and Mumi and Jonathan and the robot, I mean, my God. It's gold. What a gem. And then to do this show... Because I get on both sides. I get on both sides. I watch the. Uh, I'm on, you know, of course, the classic sites, and I get on the new TV show fan pages. I think it's wonderful. The kid, you can't go back. You know, we can't bring those as much as I love doing Jonathan Harris. I'll never be Jonathan Harris, and I'll never, you know, I could. Right. Oh yeah. We yeah, can yeah. Him impersonate and and love him and and you know light that candle for him, but we can never be him. And my eight year old is experiencing lost in space like I did now. This for him is his lost in space. This is his robot. This is his, which by the way, he uses his uh, Pacific Rim robot mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. his Star Wars people for lost in space characters. But so let's get some toys out. But anyway, he, um, that that's all Kevin Burns work. And a word about Dr. Smith too, that thing with Billy Mummy, and this is just my opinion, Billy Mummy and uh, playing Dr. Smith. What better a way to honor Jonathan's work in this unique character um, by letting it die, letting the real character die with Jonathan. You know, to people, you know, people said to me, oh, would you like to play Dr. Smith? I would, only to honor Jonathan. Um, You know, I wouldn't want to be stealing. In my mind, it wouldn't be stealing his work. It would be just keeping him going, keeping his work going. But to have killed off, to say, you know, the real Dr. Smith was Billy Mummy, which I think Jonathan would have been happy about that Billy Mummy did it if he couldn't. You know, if he couldn't, yes. <laughs> yeah, but to have killed him off, like you know, you can see Jonathan saying, "If I can't play him, kill him off." You know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> to have killed him off and letting it rest with him, so that we're developing a whole new, you know, Doctor Smith type. I mean, she. What are they going to do? She cannot be Doctor Smith anymore. We know she's June Harris. So they killed him off, and they're letting him rest with Jonathan. Now she's starting something new. She's going to be the saboteur that died in what six, the sixth episode of the original series. Was it when he started to loosen things up a bit? I think yes. it was like right after my friend Mr. Nobody. It started to go. The invaders from the fifth dimension started to get a little bit lighter hearted. Um, but I think that's a wonderful homage, and I think it was brilliantly done. You know, and who wasn't excited to see Will? Who wasn't excited that they named her June Harris? Mm-hmm. And that they let him die. Uh, with with Jonathan, I thought that was so cool. Um, the other thing about the show Lost in Space, and this is just my the original, <laughs> it's just my own opinion. But what makes it so attractive to me, and one of the things that makes the character of Doctor Smith so charming to me, is this guy did anything possible to screw them up over and over again. And the characters, the family, every time not only took him back, but they made him a member of the family. So I always, you know, we watch it. I tell my kids when they were little, you know, the Robinson family, this is a total, total fan universe thing here, but the Robinson family reformed him. You know, we know from the history that Smith's character was, you know, orphaned young, and he was raised with kind of an eccentric aunt and uncle, and they were kind mm-hmm. of odd, whatever. So, you know, who knows? He became a criminal saboteur, whatever. But the Robinson, the grace, that the Robinson family and the unconditional love they bestowed on him, I think that was the success of the show. You know, you don't have that anymore. Where the hell do you see that on TV or anywhere anymore? That kind of love, familial love and endearment and I got your back no matter what (laughs) kind of thing. You know, they just, those shows just, really they don't seem to exist anymore. Um, And I think that that was, 
you know, the brilliance of the show, the family. Like he said, Jonathan himself said, we were a family. You know, mm. we were more palatable. And and that was, you know, to their all of their credit. You know, June Lockhart, you couldn't get somebody to play a woman better than a mom better than June Lockhart. Right. <laughs> you know, so. I think that's brilliant, Michael, and I don't think I could say it any better. So thanks for sharing that. That's beautiful. And thanks for sharing your beautiful Jonathan Harris, Dr. Smith impression with us on our show today. I think it's a real tribute. It's an homage like none other, and it obviously comes from the heart. So thank you so much for being generous with your time and joining us on Alpha Control. It's been such a real pleasure speaking with Dr. Smith and with you today, and I know it's going to be a real treat for our listeners. Anything else you'd like to add? Just, uh, I want to say how honored I am to have been invited to be on. I have had a ball. Mm. <laughs> I have, this may Me be too. the only chance, other than these clips, that I ever actually get to play Dr. Zachary Smith. Mm. So I really appreciate it. It's been a great time, and I love your work. You keep keep going with what you're going and, and uh, what you're doing, because we're all eating it up. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. It's great, uh, and I appreciate your compliments as well. So we will talk soon again and look forward to meeting you in person soon. All right. You take care now. Bye-bye. That was a blast talking with actor and Jonathan Harris impressionist, Mr. Michael Panzerato. You can tell he's truly passionate about Lost in Space and his acting career, and I can't wait to see what he's got coming up next. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channels.